As you turn to Psalm 73, I want to share an experience with you that's probably very common with most parents here. Uh, and it's, it's the experience that uh, having a toddler has taught me. Having a toddler has taught me that kids don't often have the best perspectives of their situations, do they? That's probably an understatement to say that a kid at any point has a, a good understanding of what's going on. And so often, our, the reason why we say things like terrible twos and the re- reasons why toddlers are such a handful is because really they're unable to act correctly because they're unable to comprehend and to understand the circumstances that they're in. They don't know the dangers. They don't know the details that pertain to any situation they're in. And so because of this, they're constantly, 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 I can't say this enough for a room with a lot of young parents, they're constantly making the wrong decisions. And so as a parent, your job is to steer their uh, decisions to help them get perspective so they make the right decisions. This summer, we had the almost daily battle with our oldest daughter, and it was the battle of crossing the road. We have a rule in our house, and I think it's a good rule. I think you'll agree with me that when you cross the road, our daughter, she has to hold our hand. And we have a rule on the sidewalk, you can go as crazy as you want. Uh, we, we give her a lot of freedom there, but on the road, you have to hold my hand because there's a lot of danger on the road. And, and we tell our daughter Mia to look both ways, but she looks up and she looks down and she doesn't understand how to keep herself safe. So we have to keep her safe. We do this because in her limited understanding, she can't understand all the dangers of the road. And she needs a father and a mother who are there to guide her and to give her perspective and to help her. Now in that moment, as we tell our daughter to hold our hands, tears are flowing down her face. Her heart is filled with frustration. And and she's thinking, she's not able to verbalize the words, but she's thinking, how could you do this to me? If you were a good father, you would let me ride my scooter across the road. If you were a good father, you would let me do this. And as parents, we just understand she doesn't understand. Now, God has been using moments like this to teach me something. And what he's been teaching me is that just like our kids lack perspective, just like our kids need outside help in order to understand circumstances correctly, so do we. God's been teaching me that just like our kids are prone to question our goodness when we're just merely loving them and protecting them, I can be prone. We can be prone to question God's goodness when all the while he's been faithful and good to us. Now this is the lesson that Asaph wants to teach us this morning in Psalm 73, and the lesson is this, that we'll only see God's goodness clearly when we embrace God's perspective fully. Let me repeat that again. We will only see God's goodness clearly in this world, when we embrace God's perspective fully. Now, in order to show us this truth, Asaph's going to invite us into a room and share with us his testimony. And he invites us to see how he nearly fell away from the Lord because he was so caught up in his own weak and faulty perspective that he was beginning to question God's goodness in his circumstances. And he couldn't see clearly in his life how God was being good to him. And it was getting to such a point that Asaph says he nearly slipped, he nearly fell away. But more importantly, Asaph teaches us to see God's goodness clearly when it isn't so clear to us. And so the first thing he teaches us in Psalm 73 is this, that in order to see God's goodness clearly, I must escape the harmfulness of the human 
perspective. Now, Asaph begins by giving us his main point. If you're a person who loves people who cut it straight, who loves people who just say exactly what they're going to say, Asaph's your man. In Psalm 73, he gives us sort of his thesis statement. He says it in verse 1. He says this, Truly God is good to Israel. Now, Asaph, he's about to launch into his testimony of how he almost fell away from God. How he was so deep in the valley of questioning God's goodness that he nearly slipped and fell away. Yet before he does that, he begins with this affirmation. God is good. That no matter what he's about to say, he holds this banner of truth over every situation. God is good to those who are in Israel. In fact, it's for this very reason that the placement of Psalm 73 is significant. Psalm 73, it's at the very beginning of the third book of five books in the book of Psalms. And the third book of the Psalter, it begins in Psalm 73 and goes all the way to Psalm 89. Now, if we were to describe the third book of the Psalms with one word, we would describe it with this word. It's sad. It's sad. Uh, if, you're, if it's a bright, sunny day, the birds are chirping outside, Book three of the Psalms is not what you want to read. This is the the book of the Psalms you want to read when it's raining outside. You want to light a candle. You want to put on some Adele music. You read the third book of the Psalms and tears are coming down your eyes. When you read this book, you're, you're asking the question, like Israel was going through some stuff. They were having some difficulty. And yet Asaph, he's doing something instructional for us. He's intentionally putting this verse at the beginning of a chapter, at the beginning of a book that is filled with so much suffering to teach us this, that God is good no matter how you feel. That God is good no matter how hard it is to see that clearly. That in all times, he is good. See, this psalm, it's a lesson from experience that no matter what your perspective tells you, God is good. Now, the goodness of God, it's one of the most basic and foundational attributes of God. And so the Bible teaches us over and over these two truths that God is good. And so because he is good, he does good. Now, the fact that God is good means that God is the ultimate standard of goodness. We can ask this question, how do you know good from evil? And the answer is God. We know good from evil based on what God approves of and what God disapproves of. This is how we can define what is good and what is evil. We can define what is good by looking at his character by looking at what God approves of that is uh, worthy of his character, worthy of his approval. These are the things that are good. So then, God is good, and by his very nature, God does good, because this is who he is. So Asaph says in verse 37, he says, Surely God is good to Israel. See, before anything, Asaph wants to affirm that in his dealings with us, in every way, God is good to us. In everything he does, he is working his goodness to us. Now, this, the, the goodness of God, it, it differs drastically from the, our goodness. God is good in a way that is significantly different in the way that we are good. Now, I uh, pride myself as a father. I think I'm generally a good father. I hope so. I hope I'm able to say that. 
but there are times in my life where I have lapsed a little bit and I haven't done good or helpful things for my uh, children. And so I think for a moment, what flashes to my mind, and this is embarrassing to me, but I'm going to share it for you for your edification and so that you can judge me, all right? Uh, In my mind flashes this moment where I was giving my daughter food, right? Good thing, giving her fruit. I was cutting it up, and then I left for a moment, and I left the knife on the table. And I turned around, and my oldest daughter, she's waving it over her head like it's the Canadian flag, and she's the most patriotic person you've ever seen. Now, I know you're judging me, but I know that some of you guys have done a lot worse than that. And I actually know that there are some families in our youth group, their kids have like a switchblade by the time they're two, and so I don't feel all that bad about what I did. But even in me trying to be good, sometimes there are things that I do to my my family, my children, that are not good. God is not this way. God did not accidentally slip up in your life. In everything that God does, he is good. So take a moment then, and in this moment, just reflect on every event in your life and every circumstance in your life, everything, whether it was bad or whether it was good, whether you understand why it happened or whether you just have no idea why it happened. Recognize that God was good in those things. You see, we all at times in our lives, we feel like we had a bad hand dealt to us, And yet Asaph wants us to hold this banner of truth over every situation of our lives. God was good. God was good to me. See, God was good even though that marriage ended in divorce. God was good even though working for that unfair boss meant you couldn't get a promotion. God was good even though that child was born with that sickness. See, these circumstances, they don't change God's goodness. He is good. And yet so often in our perspective, we can be prone in our weakness to question if God is being good to us. And Asaph, he's giving us practical instruction here over every situation. The way that you escape the harmfulness of believing that God is being bad to you is by holding this banner of truth over your head, saying, even though I don't understand it, I'm proclaiming, God, you are good. Asaph adds to this that God is good to those who are pure in heart. Now, to be pure in heart, it means that you're totally committed to God. Now, the psalmist here, he's not intending to say that if you aren't pure in heart, God's not going to be good to you. Instead, he's reaffirming what is arguably one of the most major themes of the book of Psalms. And that is this, that God blesses those who walk uprightly. And so Psalm 1 begins and it opens up with this theme. And the theme of Psalm 1 is declaring that, that God pours out blessing on those who walk Uh, in his way, and he curses those who do not. That if you're righteous, you'll be blessed, and if you're wicked, you'll be cursed. In Psalm 34, verses 15 and 16, the psalmist writes this. It's going to come up on the screen. He says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Now, the issue for us at times is is that at times in our faulty, weak, and insufficient perspective as humans, we can't understand how God is blessing the righteous and cursing the wicked. Because from our perspective, it seems like it's the exact opposite. 
From our perspective, at times, it seems like God is blessing the wicked and cursing the righteous. And so Asaph's there, and he says, I know this is what the book of Psalms is about. I know this is what my relationship with God is founded on, that God blesses those who are walking righteously, but I just don't see it. This is why he says next in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Because even though these things are constantly true, even though God blesses the righteous no matter what the circumstances is, our human perspective can cause us to cast doubt on these truths. See, this is the nature of our walk with Christ. You can be certain as you follow the Lord in this life that there will be cast on your path questions that cause you to wonder if God is good or not. See, for all time, All of God's people have struggled with this question at some point in their life. Is God really good? Is God really good? Then this is the question for us. What are the ways we might be tempted to question God's goodness? See, Asaph shares with us by by sharing his testimony of how he almost slipped. He shows us the ways that we might be tempted to uh, believe that God isn't good. Now notice that all this happened because Asaph says in verse 3, he says, for I was envious of the arrogant. See, he looks around him and he's agonized by this question, why are the wicked prospering? See, Asaph, he was just being faithful. He was doing exactly what the Psalms said he should do. He was walking in the way of the Lord. And yet he looked around and it seemed from his perspective like God was pouring more goodness on the wicked than he was on the righteous. And so he looks at their lives and his heart, it's filled with envy, he says. Now envy is is seeing the blessing of another person, seeing a blessing that they have and being embittered because you don't have that blessing and you feel like you deserve it. Jerry Bridges says this about envy. He says, envy is the painful and oftentimes resentful awareness of an advantage enjoyed by someone else. See, we envy those who have what we value but do not have. And so then our hearts are filled with envy. So we might envy that person who got the promotion when we feel we just do a better job. We might envy that parent whose child just sits with perfect attention at all times and is mannered like an adult and who is an amazing athlete, an amazing student. We might envy those people whose circumstances are better than ours. Now, Asaph's going to get practical about what exactly can drive us to envy. So I want you to see a few things here and maybe categorize ways that you might be dealing with envy in your life and ways that envy might be causing you to question the goodness of God. The first is the envy of others' prosperity. And so Asaph writes in verse 3, he says, I was envious of the arrogant, but look what he says, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. See, what drove him to envy was seeing that Wicked people were prospering. When we see and envy other people who are prospering, this can cause us to question God's goodness towards us. And so Asaph, he looks and he sees that the wicked people are better provided than even he is. Now we do similar, don't we? We see another family driving a nicer car than us, a newer car than us, and we might feel like we deserve better. Or you go over to another person's house, and you're never doing this blatantly, but you're kind of giving like the sneaky side eyes, aren't you? Like looking, oh, that's a nice setup they got. Oh, their house is a lot cleaner than mine. Oh, their house is a lot more organized than mine. 
or you're looking at the size of their garage. Oh, it'd be nice to have that much storage. Yet notice how the believer can only be filled with envy when he's viewing things from a temporal and earthly perspective. See, Asaph writes, he says, when I saw their envy. See, when our hearts are filled with envy towards others' prosperity, we in reality are unable to see truth from God's perspective. If we could see from God's perspective, if we could have a a bird's eye view of the situation, we could see that from God's perspective, we would know that others' prosperity is not evidence of God's lack of goodness to us. Just because others are prospering doesn't mean God isn't being good to you. See, despite others prospering, despite you feeling that you're not prospering enough, God is proclaiming this. He is good. He is good. See, church, is it not true that despite the fact that others have prospered more than you, that God is still good? See, God's sovereign over all your prosperity. God is sovereign over all the things you have. And if we as earthly parents know that it's not good to give your children absolutely everything they ever want, that that can be destructive to their soul, how much more does God know everything that you need? And how much more is he able to give you everything that you need? But in his goodness, he has given you all that you have. See, despite the fact that others are prospering, Despite the fact that we might feel like we're not prospering as much, it is still true that God is good. It is still true that it is good to draw near to God. Second thing, way that our hearts might be filled with envy is the envy of others' peace. And so Asaph looks around and he he sees the peace that the wicked experience and he writes this. He says, For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Now, I just have a free insight for you, okay? This is absolutely free, not even really part of the sermon, but I just want to hand it out to you because it's going to be really helpful. Some of you guys, it's January 5th. You made a New Year's resolution. You're going to lose some weight, right? But after five days, that starts to get really hard. Now, look at the text here. Asaph's saying that the body that's to be envied is actually the fat and sleek body. So biblically, it's better to, lo- to gain weight than it is to lose weight. So some of you guys, you got to change up your goals. I can hear some husbands saying, this is the best sermon I've ever heard. This is awesome. I'm, not, I'm just kidding. I'm completely kidding. But this is what Asaph is saying. He's saying that there's danger in looking at others' circumstances and wishing that we could have it as good as them. And so he sees the peace that the wicked have until death. He sees that they live their life in pleasure, eating food in abundance. And he shows us that we in our human perspective are prone to view others' circumstances and envy it. We're prone to see their situation and just think, oh, if I could just live a life as easy as theirs, if I could just live a life that didn't have my suffering, uh, but I, I could just live a life as peaceful as theirs, then, then I would truly be blessed. See, maybe it's a trial that we're facing that most people don't. Maybe we have a health problem that just is unique to us and and we look at other people and they're living healthy lives. And yet, let me ask you, do these things mean that God is not good? And the answer, it has to be no. God is good. God is good. 
In fact, it's often through these things that seemingly rob our peace, through these trials that seemingly rob our peace. It's often through these things that God brings his greatest blessings. This is why Paul was able to to boast and delight in the thorn that God had placed in his flesh. So he brought him the blessing of knowing weakness. And God is using what you feel to be in a a lack of peace in your life. He's using that for your good. This is why Paul would write, he works all things together for good. See, God is doing a work. God is good when you feel you lack peace. Now, there's one more way that we might experience envy, and it's the envy of others' progress. And so Asaph shows how these people go on boasting about their wickedness. He goes, shows how, how they boast about what wickedness has got them. They wear pride like a necklace, he says. They, they wear violence like a garment. They speak against God like this. They say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Despite their lack of righteousness, they just continue to progress and progress. And he says, they're always at ease. They just increase in riches. See, as he looks at the situation, he's confused because even though they're unrighteous, it appears that they've made it. And we may be tempted to do the same confusion. There are many things that as Christians that are unavailable to us as we seek to pursue Christ in the way that we live that are available to unbelievers. Because you're following God, you might have to deny that promotion that would take you away from being able to serve your church, that would take you away from being able to pour in your family the way that that really glorifies God. Yet is God bad because of this? Even in all these things, this is what the psalmist is teaching us this morning, even in all these things, God is good to those who are in Israel, and it is good to draw near to this God. Now notice, while envy, it causes us to resent others, it also causes uh, us to resent God, and it destroys our relationship with God. So Asaph says in verse 13 to 15, he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, Asaph, he looks at his righteousness and he sees it should be bringing him blessing, but at the end of the day, all that he can say as he looks at this from his perspective is that it has brought him cursing. He's frustrated. And yet the only one that envy has hurt is himself. It's been said that envy is like uh, drinking poison, hoping, hoping that it will affect your enemies. In envy, it destroys his relationship with God. And perhaps in this moment, God is revealing to you that envy is a, real, a very real part of your life. It's causing you to question God's goodness because he's poured gifts out on other people and you feel like he hasn't poured gifts out on you. And what God wants to do for us this morning is show us the danger of the position that we are in when our hearts are filled with envy. Envy is poisoning your relationship with God, causing you to believe that the God who is good and the God who does good is not that way to you. It's blinding to us. And so if we are uh, in danger of having a human perspective and our hearts are filled with envy, then Asaph shows us what we need to do next. He says this, that if we want to see God's goodness clearly, we need to embrace the happiness of the heavenly perspective. 
If we want to see God's goodness clearly, we need to embrace the happiness of the heavenly perspective. Now, in verse 16, there's a powerful shift that happens. It's a perspective change. And Asaph, he tries to wrap his mind around how God could be good when the wicked are so clearly prospering. And so he says this in verse 16. He says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. See, he's trying to make sense of God's goodness, but it's wearisome and it's burdensome for him to try to figure it out. And of course it is. That just makes sense, doesn't it? Asaph, he's a creature, and God is the creator. If we are creatures and God is the creator, then of course his ways are going to be mysterious to us. This is the concept that Paul grasps when after explaining God's plan of salvation, he writes these words in Romans chapter 11. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How inscrutable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? See, Paul looks at the wonders of God and he says, I just can't understand them, but they're amazing. See, when we try to truly understand who we are as creatures, living under the sovereign rule of the creator, it makes sense that we're not going to understand everything completely. See, as creatures, we are not equipped to understand every way that God is working things out for his goodness. Now, we understand this concept every time we enter into a conversation that we're just not equipped to be a part of. I wonder if you have ever uh, done this, where you uh, enter into a conversation, maybe two people are talking, and, and as you start to hear the subject matter of the conversation, you begin to realize that you are just not equipped enough to handle this conversation. Like, you have nothing to contribute to this conversation. This happens to me almost on a weekly basis at, at youth group. I talk to my kids. And I'm like, hey, how's school going? Like, oh, it's going great. And I'm like, hey, what are you learning in math? Now, I need to make a confession about math, okay? I was very bad in high school at math. In fact, the only course that I did well in was statistics, and that's because I learned really early on that 73.7% uh, of made up statistics sound true if they end in three or seven. Now, it's coming just some of you, but that helped me get through statistics. Now, I, it's been a long time since high school, and so now I'm as, as I'm talking to these kids about math, like now I'm even worse at math to the point that when a cashier hands me change, I just say, I'm going to trust you on this one. I cannot do the division to figure that out. In fact, one of the reasons they made Bible college is because you don't have to do any math. There's no math in the Bible, so you're good. You're clear of math. And so I start talking to these kids about math, and they're talking about calculus and syncos tan and long division and basic adding. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about here. I'm not equipped to be in this conversation with you. Now listen, if we are inadequately equipped to understand some of the things of this world, like for me, grade six math, how much more are we going to be unequipped to understand the things of God? See, we're not the creator. We're not God. And so from our perspective, in our humanity, we can't understand all that God is doing, all the ways that he is working for his good. And yet many in here, you've kind of made this unspoken pact with God that you're not going to start believing until 
he is good. You're not going to start believing he's good until you can understand why he does the things he does. And you're kind of sitting there with your arms crossed and you're saying, until I understand why you did that, I'm not going to follow you, God. And you need to understand that as a creature, we just cannot understand the deep things of God. Yet the amazing truth is this, that God here invites us to view our lives from his perspective. And he does this by showing Asaph the end of the story. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says this, Until I went into the sanctuary, he says, he thought to, how to understand this. It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. See, we aren't given all the details about the middle of the story, but we are given perspective of the end of the story. And it's enough perspective to say this, God is no good. God is good no matter what my perspective tells me. See, in, in the grace of God and through the knowledge of him, he invites us to embrace eternal perspective, to look at our story from the end rather than from the middle. And this is what grants us the happiness that we can find despite the wicked prospering, despite the evil that we face in this world, despite the fact that so often we can just not see God's goodness clearly in our life. Now notice that it's not until Asaph enters the sanctuary that he's able to become aware of the truth of his situation. This teaches us the first thing about heavenly perspective. And it's this, that if we wish to uh, embrace that heavenly perspective, it starts in God's presence. Heavenly perspective starts in God's presence. Now the sanctuary, the temple, was the place where God dwelt. It was God's presence with his people. And in the presence of an eternal God, as, as Asaph serves in there, he becomes powerfully aware of the end of the wicked He's informed that despite outward appearance, God truly is good to those who are in Israel. And so it is this way with us. We can't begin to understand reality. We can't begin to understand our experiences, our circumstances, rightly until we stand before God. Until we hear and know God's word. This is why John Calvin says this. It says, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplations to look into himself. See, it's not until you know God that you can really understand your circumstances in this world. And the way that we primarily contemplate the face of God, as Calvin says, the way that we primarily experience God's presence is through his word. This is why at the very center of the temple stood the Ark of the Covenant. And inside the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. It was the Word of God because God was showing his people and he's showing us today that the presence of God is where God's Word is understood, where it is heard, where it is preached, where it is read. This is where God's presence is. So recognize that it's the scriptures that are, are the lens we need to wear if we're going to understand the circumstances and situations that we're in rightly. And so if you're not regularly reading God's word, of course you're going to constantly spiral out of control. You're never going to be properly grounded in heavenly perspective. Because you're not reading God's word. I can't tell you how many countless times I felt like my world's been spinning. My, my heart's been filled with all these questions. I feel like my gaze is so distracted. But then you open up God's word 
and you find a firm place for your feet, you find that you're given perspective of the situation that you're in. This is why at this church we love soap journaling. Because when you read God's word and you find a scripture that speaks to you and you make observations about the truth of that scripture and then you apply it to your life and pray it into action, when you do those things, God gives you true perspective. You wouldn't believe how many times I and the staff and the elders have heard, well, I don't want to do this soap journal thing. And we say, okay, just try it for a week. Just try it for a week. I do this with my youth, and, and they go try it and try it for a week, and the person comes back and they say, all I got was this application from God's word that was super highly relevant to my life, and if I applied it to my life, it would change everything forever. But that's all. See, this is God's word. Of course, when we're reading it and applying it to our lives, we're going to have a firm foundation for our feet. We're going to be able to see clearly. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet. It guides the way. It guides the path. See, it's through God's word that you get perspective. And so God's word and spiritual perspective, they go hand in hand. And then so, so this should just become automatic in your life and in, in your life as you disciple others. As you see someone's perspective start to drift away from God's truth, you need to immediately ask them, hey, are you in God's word? And my wife and I, we, we have this where it's just like this automatic reaction. Hey, it doesn't look like you're doing so well. Are you reading God's word? And so often the answer is no. See, what you need to do with a person who lacks spiritual uh, um, spiritual perspective is the same thing that you need to do with a person who's hangry. Anyone in here uh, guilty of being hangry at times? You know what hangry is? When you're hungry, you get angry. Now, when you're a person like myself who gets hangry, the people around you, they know what to do. When they start sensing anger in your life, what do they do? Hey, 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 slow down, slow down. You need to eat. You need to eat. You just need to get some food in you. You're not thinking clearly. Once you eat, this is going to be okay. And then what's the person do? They eat a Snickers bar, and then they're, they're okay. Then they can think clearly, right? Now, this is the same thing in our spiritual lives. We need to regularly feed on God's word. Now, we also learn this from this experience, that heavenly perspective shows the proper passions. And so Asaph, he's given perspective at the end of those who are wicked. And look what he says in verses 18 to 20. He says, this is the perspective he's given. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakens, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as, fountain, as a phantoms. See, what Asaph comes to realize is that at the end of the day, Psalm 1 is true. Psalm 1 says there's blessing for walking with God, but the psalmist, he ends Psalm 1 with this, and it's going to come up on the screen in verses 4 to 6. He says this, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And what Asaph comes to realize when he gets perspective in the sanctuary, is that the way of the wicked, it leads to destruction, that truly Psalm 1 is correct. He therefore realizes that the, the way of the righteous is to be envied and to be blessed. And so what he does then is he looks at how he's been living as he's been questioning God's uh, goodness, and he begins to, to repent. And so in verses 21 and 22, he says this, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. 
I was like a beast towards you. See, when we question the goodness of God, it becomes nearly impossible for us to follow God. By believing for a moment that God is not good, our soul, it becomes embittered to God. We become brutish and ignorant towards God. Having the wrong perspective of God's goodness is like poison to our passions. We can, can no longer desire the right things. We can no longer long to do the right things. And Satan knows this. So one of the primary ways he will attack you is to make you think that God in all his goodness has not been good enough. Or that God in all his goodness is really not being good to you. Isn't this the way that he tempted Adam and Eve? When he was in the garden, didn't, didn't Satan say to Adam and Eve, oh, did God really say you can't eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden? Did God really say that? Oh, you know, you wouldn't imagine the blessing that would be for you if you could just eat of every tr- fruit of the tree of, of the garden. Isn't it the same thing that Satan did with Job? Oh, Job's only following you because you're giving him good things, God. Maybe if we take away all the good things that Job has, then maybe he won't follow you anymore. See, this is the, this is the scheme that Satan uses to make us believe that there's something better on the path of the wicked than there is on the path of the righteous. And so man fell into believing the same lie day after day for thousands and thousands of years until the day that the presence of God himself came, the man God, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus, as he faces the greatest horror that humanity would ever face, he never stops believing in the goodness of God. As Jesus stands before the cross, he cries in desperation, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. See, believing God's goodness through the cross, he would face the greatest evil of the cross knowing that it was the greatest good of the Father. And you see, Jesus, he, he succeeds in every way and the way that we fail so often. He never begins to believe that God hasn't been good to him. He never questions God's goodness. He always understands that God is working out his plan in his way. And when we, having sinned against God, having been like Asaph, having walked away from God because for our hearts were filled with envy because we failed to believe that he was being good to us, as we have called God evil for giving us bad gifts, Jesus has come and he has paid the price for our forgiveness. It is through Jesus Christ that we can have the forgiveness of sins. And if you're here this morning and you don't know forgiveness, if you aren't in a relationship with God, if you don't know who God is, then this gift is offered to you through Jesus Christ. And all you need to do is cast your faith in him and say, I'm a sinner who needs a savior. Now, the last thing that Asaph shows us is that heavenly perspective, it satisfies the ultimate pleasure. See, God's presence, it, it, at, once, at one time it was his complaint, but now it's his celebration. And so look what he says in verse 23. He says, nevertheless, I am continually with you. See, Asaph, he's celebrating in the presence of God. And the reason he celebrates is because he's given this assurance of his salvation. It's the same assurance that's given to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. 
Listen to the affirmations we're able to make once we are right with God, once we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We're able to say that we're grasped by God. You see that in verse 23? Asaph says, you hold my right hand. We're able to see that we're guided by God. He says in verse 24a, you guide me with your counsel. And we're able to see that ultimately one day we will be glorified so that Asaph says, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Now once we have this assurance, we're we're able to make this astounding proclamation that Asaph makes at the end of Psalm 73. He, He says these words, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Church, you recognize that because God has proven his goodness in the greatest way, because God has provided for your greatest needs, securing your salvation, you are able to say that there is nothing to be desired outside of him. You already have everything that you need so that there is no reason for your heart to be filled with envy at what others have because you are rich in Jesus Christ. See, this is the declaration we make that no matter how unpromising the situation, we are able to rest in what God is to us. That no matter how dark the valley is that we walk in, God is still near to us. We're able to say with the psalmist, who have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now just as Asaph was bold in his beginning and telling us everything that he was going to talk about, he ends the same way. So he says in verses 27 and 28, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. Asaph, he began like this. Surely God is good to those in Israel. And he ends like this. It is good for me to draw near to God. Church, we go from here with this reoriented perspective. Psalm 73, it's reminded us that it's good to be a creature in the hands of an almighty and good creator. Now, there's one thing that we know for sure going from this place is that we we walk out these doors into a world of unknown. In In your life, you will face hardship. You will face sickness. You will face the loss of loved ones. You may lose your job. Your child may not walk in the Lord. And yet, over all of these things, we are still able to hold up this banner of truth. God is good, and it is good to draw near to him. See, as creatures, we don't have all the details. We get pieces of the puzzle, but we don't get to see the whole picture. And we ask ourselves, why? Don't you think in this moment, at any moment in your life, God is powerful enough to explode onto the narrative of your life and to tell you why everything's happening in your life? He's able to do that, and sometimes he does that, but oftentimes he doesn't. So that in the midst of uncertainty, you might still proclaim this truth. There is nothing, there is nothing that I desire besides him. 
that you might proclaim, though you don't know how, you know he is great and he is doing marvelous things in and through you. And so may, may we be given eyes to see the harmfulness of our weak and faulty perspective. And may God grant to us the heavenly perspective that in the midst of our difficulties, we may proclaim our joy in a good God. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. And God, we testify, each saint in this room, to your goodness. God, that every step of the way, we can make this declaration that you are a great God. And yet, God, we confess how often we fail to grasp this. How often our lives fail to proclaim this. And so, God, we pray that in this moment, by the power of your Spirit, through the conviction of your Word, Lord, that we would make the resolution, Lord, that we are going to proclaim your goodness no matter the situation. Because, God, you are a God who is good and you are a God who does good. Lord, we thank you for showing your goodness to us in Jesus Christ in the greatest way so that, Lord, we never have to question if you're good. Lord, you have done the greatest thing that you could do for us by providing us salvation in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, it's because of that, because of all the things that you have done for us, Lord, that we now proclaim, God, you are good. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen.